Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andrew Degeler, and today we are going to discuss two major funding rounds, then Spotify's Q3 report, and then robotic firing by Uber in Europe, and also some policy news. Later on, I will also play an interview with Job van der Voort of Remote.com. So let me talk you through some of the most important headlines of the week, starting with funding news. First up, German-founded travel tech startup Get Your Guide has raised 114 million euros, but not in equity funding, which would be expected, I guess, with a round of this size, but as a convertible note. The round is led by Searchlight Capital, with participation from SoftBank Vision Fund, KKR Battery Ventures, Highland Europe, Spark Capital Lake, Star, Hardcore Capital and NGP Capital. That's a mouthful. The way a convertible note or a convertible loan works is that it transforms into equity in the company at a price of the next equity funding round, when that happens. However, Ingrid London over at TechRunch reports that the team does not really expect to raise more money for another 12 to 18 months. Also, the current round is significantly smaller uh, than the previous capital injection of Get Your Guide. Uh, back in 2019, the company raised 484 million US dollars in a Series E funding round. And as far as I understand, it can be seen as a sort of a lifeline uh, that can help the startup to survive the lockdowns. And two weeks ago, Get Your Guide also laid off some 90 employees, and that's about 15% of its overall headcount. It's also worth mentioning that uh, Johannes Reck, the co-founder and CEO of Get Your Guide, says that he had no problem at all raising this round, and in his view, there are so many investors with dry powder now that they are very happy to pour their money into startups that they believe will survive the crisis and thrive when things are back to normal. With Germany, however, joining the club of European countries and going into a partial lockdown next week, this new funding round for Get Your Guide couldn't be more timely. Now, another big funding round this week was raised by Codit.io. That's a Finnish real estate startup that uses algorithms to speed up sales in the housing market. The round was led by Nordic real estate investor NREP, and it will be used to purchase new homes for Codit's real estate portfolio. So I'm pretty sure that we did talk about Codit on this podcast before, but here's just a quick refresher on how it works. The startup's main asset is a machine learning powered real estate data platform that gives home sellers instant cash offers. Afterwards, if the offer is accepted, Codit becomes the owner of the home for some time. Uh, it takes care of renovating uh, the purchased homes and then it puts them back on the market. Now, the company aims to scale in its existing markets of Finland, Spain, and Poland, and also it is considering expansion into new markets soon, but we have got no further details as to what could be the next destination. Moving forward, Spotify has published its Q3 report, which looks reasonably optimistic. Per the Wall Street Journal report, uh, Spotify had 320 million monthly active users, higher than its guidance. Paying subscribers, its most lucrative type of customer, grew to 144 million, which is at the high end of the company's forecast, the quote ends. 
So there's a whole lot of other numbers in the report, so I will try to quote them sparingly. Uh, here comes the company's revenue grew 14% and it reached uh, 1.98 billion euros, so almost 2 billion euros, but it still ended the quarter with a loss of 101 million euros. A year ago, it finished the, the Q3 with a profit of uh, 241 million euros, but that doesn't really mean much as far as I understand, as the executives say that they want to focus on growth rather than short-term profitability. And of course, let us see what Spotify has to say about podcasts. It's got a total of 1.9 million shows on its platform at the moment. In Q3, 22% of the monthly active users of Spotify listened to at least one podcast, and that would be 70 million people, so a pretty sizable audience. In August, the most listened to show was the Michelle Obama podcast, but then along came Joe Rogan and of course took the first place across all English-speaking markets and overall. Now let us move on to the big bad tech, starting with Uber. Uh, the company has been challenged in the Amsterdam District Court by the App Drivers and Couriers Union. The reason is that Uber has allegedly dismissed several drivers in the UK and in Portugal based solely on automated system analysis. Uh, per the EU regulations, it turns out, in this situation the humans in question have a right to request a review by a fellow human. Uber, however, says that the cases have already been reviewed by its specialists and that happened before the dismissals were made. So an interesting part of this story is what the drivers were dismissed for. Uh, Uber did not provide a lot of details, but the union alleges that, at least in one case, the reason was that the driver supposedly strategically logged out of the app to wait for surge pricing. If true, this would actually throw a wrench in Uber's PR works because, I mean, we've all seen that the company has spent years telling everyone how its drivers are entirely free to choose when and where they want to work. So we'll have to wait a while, of course, to see how this challenge gets resolved. In the meantime, the union is looking for more Uber drivers dismissed by a robot to join the collective action. It is also running a so-called crowd justice campaign to help to fund the legal standoff. In the policy land, this week has brought a variety of stories, so I will just read a few headlines. Italian watchdog investigates Google over alleged advertising market abuse. France's online ad lobbies file antitrust complaint against Apple. German watchdog launches new investigation into Amazon. All this is happening at the same time, and also it's happening at the time that the Commission is preparing the new regulations that are reported to curb the power of the big tech players and possibly prevent all transfer of data of European citizens outside of Europe. There was, however, another interesting story that I really wanted to highlight. Looks like there's another big player now on the market that could be using its dominance to squash the competition. The only problem is that this player is a local one. It's Germany's most valuable company, SAP. Politico reports that the Commission and Germany competition authorities are looking into SAP's practices, but the whole situation is kind of weird. For example, Margrethe Vesteger, the face of European antitrust, she is also supposed to be boosting the European digital champions. And SAP is certainly one of those champions, right? 
So anyway, a complaint against SAP in Germany was filed back in 2018, and it argues that SAP abuses its market power to coerce customers into accepting excessive licensing fees. The company itself says, however, that it follows normal industry practices. Independently of that complaint, the Commission is also reportedly looking into the licensing practices of SAP, but it did not offer any comment or confirmation of that process. Either way, I am certainly very much looking forward to seeing this story develop, and I will keep you posted. Now it is time for today's interview. Let us listen to Robin Wouters talking to Job van der Ford of Remote.com. So hey, this is Robin Walters from Tech.eu, and I'm joined here uh, remotely, of course. And in this case, it's really, uh, really nice to have uh, this this word remotely in there. I'm joined by the founder and CEO of a company called Remote.com, uh, Job van der Voort, originally from the Netherlands, uh, but now based in Portugal, where he's uh, calling in from. Uh, Job, thank you so much for joining the podcast, and maybe give us a little bit of background of who you are. Yeah, thanks, Robin. So I am Job. I'm originally Dutch, as you said. I have a background in neuroscience. I did it for a number of years, but didn't last very long. I ended up uh, joining GitLab when it was founded, uh, which is a large uh, tech company. At, at the time, it was not large. We were just five guys and led product there from, from the beginning until I left. And when I left GitLab, it was specifically to found uh, Remote, the, the company that I'm the CEO of. And I mean, I, I can go into the story. I, I think it might be interesting. GitLab. It's a fully distributed company, which nowadays is, is, is a normal thing. Everybody works remotely. Uh, at the time, it wasn't, uh, at around 2013, 2014. So what we did is whenever we would want to hire someone new, rather than to search someone in the vicinity of an office, we didn't have an office. So we would just hire the best person we could find. And that was great. We, we saw massive advantages that for us as an organization, for all the individuals, you could work from wherever you want. Um, the benefits that we are now all becoming very familiar with. Uh, and without the pandemic, it, it really is nice to work remotely. One challenge that we did have was that every time we would hire someone in a country where uh, we never hired someone before, we had to figure out how do we pay this person? How do we provide them with benefits? And it turned out that it was actually very difficult. It, there was not really a good solution to do that and to do that in a way that was you know, fully compliant and legal and would actually benefit all parties involved. Uh, and so uh, after five years at GitLab, I decided to solve that for once and all because we, we, we struggled with that our entire time, my entire time, at least at GitLab. Uh, so I found it remote together with uh, my best friend, Marcel, and uh, so what we do is we specifically solve this problem. So remote uh, allows you to employ people in other countries through remote. And then what we do is we take care of payroll, we take care of the benefits and anything that comes with employing someone locally. Um, and uh, we do that through our own global infrastructure. Uh, and we've been doing that since, uh, since the beginning of last year. Great. Well, we're going to get into uh, what you offer uh, in, in more detail in a bit. But but what I find interesting about this story is that you basically had five years worth of market research where you were looking <laughs> for this type of solution and couldn't find it. So so what is the biggest problem? Why didn't something like this exist before? There are some solutions available, but there there's a few complications here. First off, there were not many organizations that would hire, you know, 50 people in 50 different countries. And uh, so, you know, the typical solution for this problem and the, the actual solution is to start an entity to, to, to found a company in every country in which you hire people in. 
uh, that's very time consuming and it's very costly. But you know, typically how large companies would expand is they would open a satellite in one city, right? Like they would open up, now we're gonna open an office in Germany. Now we're gonna open up an office here and they would spend a significant amount of time to get started there, get an office, etc. So there was really not the need for a very long time. And once that need uh, started to come, there are a few local players that would help you with payroll, but none of them would be ready for like a large tech company that quickly wants to hire people, that wants to offer really great benefits um, and wants to be very competitive in doing that. So yeah, it's a combination of like there there wasn't uh, a market for it yet, uh, but also, yeah, this this change came really, really quickly. And um, yeah, the alternative is, is just very expensive and uh, it creates a lot of overhead. Yeah, not just very expensive, but also incredibly time-consuming, I assume. So the yeah. way you're sort of automating and taking away a lot of the, the HR work from these big companies that want to like grow fast internationally, um, but do you see it more as complementary? Do you actually provide these HR people with tools or do you want to displace them in a way? Uh, so the way we like to think about it is that we just take away the entire headache of managing the bureaucratic bits, right? So... Uh, the way we position our service is that you access everything through our app and you just get a single invoice and that takes care of all paperwork essentially that you would otherwise have to take care of. So it's not to say that we take we remove the HR function, we just remove the bureaucratic bit of taking care of payroll and benefits. It's still up to you to decide what kind of benefits you want to offer, how you want to you know, compensate people, et cetera. We just take care of, you know, I like to describe it as we do the boring stuff. So you can focus on like the more important stuff, which is managing people and making sure you know, they feel included and they, you know, they have a great career. Now, how do you actually pull this off? Do you have subsidiaries in all of these countries that you need, these services, need to provide these services in? Yes, yes. We haven't, for the size of the company that we are, we're now about, 35 employees in total, we have a massive network of subsidiaries. Yes, in every country in which we're active, we have our own subsidiary. And actually, what we've learned early on is that it's not viable to work with partners. So we, we, we never work with someone else that owns a subsidiary. It's always our own subsidiary, which is turned out to be incredibly expensive and time consuming to set up. But the advantages is that we control everything, meaning we can act really quickly. We are always fully responsible for everything that happens. Uh, and that makes it very easy for us to provide great service. Yeah, and that means you can also do it at scale at this point. Uh, but it also means that all these headaches and the boring stuff that you're taking away from these companies actually goes to you. So, so what are some, <laughs> of, some of the things you've learned, like opening up subsidiaries uh, for, for that purpose? Like, well, What are some of the toughest countries to do the, the, these businesses uh, in? Um, uh, what we found is that there's a great variety in how countries operate and how it is to set up a business. You would think that, you know, for example, across the EU, it would be quite similar for each country. Uh, that's not the case at all. Like it's it's very different in each country uh, and incredibly time consuming. The hardest country was France, or at least it took us the most time. It took us about eight months from like, getting started to actually uh, being fully incorporated and active there. And yeah, it's just... Every, almost everything, especially in a time where you can't go to a place, you can't easily fly in and to take care of matters, has been a challenge. We struggle a lot opening bank accounts. You know, local governments might be more incentivized to allow you to do things remotely, right? They have to quickly transition. But it, what we found is that financial institutions are, are not that much inclined to do so. So, you know, I have a weekly appointment at my notary. We regularly have to apostle documents. I didn't even know what apostling documents was until I had to do it. And now we do it all the time. So yeah, yeah. those are those are interesting challenges. 
Yeah, yeah. So some learnings from you. Um, but then who's your average customer? Like, what, what, because you mentioned tech companies uh, have tend to have more distributed workforce and more used to working remotely and growing internationally that way. But do you have the, do you have an average customer in the first place? And what do they typically come to you for in the first place? It, it varies more than expected. What I expected is that we would have basically only software startups from the US that would want to employ people in Europe. And uh, we find that that is true to a degree, but not the majority, I think. I think the average company is you know anywhere between 220 and 500 employees or so, maybe a little bit bigger than that. And um, yeah, like their, their need is always the same, which is we found a great person in a country where we don't know how to take care of payroll. We don't even know what kind of benefits to give locally. And uh, that's that's how it almost always starts. Another typical customer we see is that, you know, companies often start out hiring people as contractors. So they have the people invoice them directly uh, and they realize, wait, we're not compliant here. We're not, you know, following how we should do things. And we need a solution for that. And uh, in that case, we transition those contractors to be employed through us. Yeah. Uh, being compliant is one thing, but of course, these these rules and, and, and being compliant also changes over time. So you, I'm guessing you constantly have to monitor like local laws, local regulations, new tax incentives, new, I don't know, insurance, that, that, that sort of thing. You, is that a challenge? I assume it is, but how do, how do you fix it? How do you yeah, it? I, mean, I mean, it's... It's one of those things that that it is complex, but if you have a local team, which we have, right? like we have always have local attorneys, local accountants, uh, this becomes very manageable. So uh, it becomes manageable because we spend a lot of time setting up and making sure everything is ready before we open up a country to to our customers. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's the reality. Like uh, for us, you know, the way we think about this always is like we do this stuff so other people don't have to. So you know, for us, it's not overhead; it's our core business to take care of these kind of things. Yeah. It sounds like the kind of company that would be invented during a pandemic when, <laughs> when uh, of course, remote working is, is blowing up tremendously. But it was it was created before, of course, but it must yeah. have been a huge boon. Like, in, in, I know it's a, a really sort of a bad reason, but 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 a good uh, good uh, outcome, right? Yeah, I, I think you know, we were expecting the remote work to grow significantly right over the coming years uh, and i think with the pandemic it has probably you know made a step of 10 years or so uh, and and so for us it, it definitely helps we we only started onboarding customers earlier this year so we don't have a clear comparison point before and after the pandemic what we did see is we saw some uh, customers tell us that you know, pre previously we were planning to move people to the office and like fly them to another country, help them move in. And now they're accepting, well, you know, that's not going to happen. Let, let's just let everybody work remotely. And, and and so those are new customers for us, customers that we wouldn't have had if there wasn't pandemic. So, uh, but all in all, I would have preferred not the pandemic to have happened. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, well, it's definitely accelerated the change that was sort of already happening. It just really, really goes uh, fast now. But how much of that change do you think is going to be permanent? Is it is remote working really going to be uh, very, very instilled, like a, the standard? Or is it still going to be sort of the minority of companies? Going forward. No, I don't think so. I I would I don't want to make an estimate on like the amount of companies, but no. I do think that it's going to be commonplace forever going forward. I think you know a lot of a large part of the reason why it wasn't before is because you know employers had the power to say no, we don't want to allow that because it's never going to work. And as an employee, you had very little leverage over that. And what you see now is that you know employers are being proven wrong. 
Like you don't need to pay for office space. And employees are becoming aware of that. Like it is not necessary to be in an office. So the leverage for employers to say you have to come to an office and the amount of employers that force you to do so becomes smaller as the demand for remote work becomes larger. So um, I think this is going to be a permanent thing. I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure of it. We saw the trend going up already and now this just accelerated it. And for sure, there's going to be companies that are you know, going to move back to the office partially or maybe even fully. Uh, but I, I think individuals will will choose the companies that, that they want to work with. And I think uh, many more will choose now for remote work. Um, aside from HR solutions, what, what are some of, because you worked in a company with distributed workforce uh, for, for years, like what are some of the challenge that, challenges with that, that companies tend to underestimate? Yeah, I think, I'm not sure if companies necessarily underestimate it, but I, I, I do think they don't do enough or they're not thinking about it enough. There are two, two things. One is you stop having accidental interactions, right? Like spontaneous interactions. You walk into the office, you see your colleagues sitting around, uh, you talk with them at the water cooler. That can be replaced, but it has to be an explicit decision in a company that works remotely in the sense that you have to create moments and times where you're interacting with your colleagues outside of the context of work outside of the context of a, of, you know, a specific subject related to something that you're working on. Um, and if you don't do that, it's going to be much harder to form a bond between colleagues. It's going to be much harder to build like a strong company culture. Um, so that's one. And I, I think it's easy to solve, right? You can play games with each other. You can, you know, set up a happy hour, or whatever else. And I, the other challenge I think is that there's tendency to start doing everything in video calls, like in Zoom. And uh, I think if you have a day full of Zoom calls, you're going to go crazy, especially if you do this for a number of days or a number of weeks and now a number of months. And so you have to shift to working more asynchronously, only having meetings where you actually need to have a meeting and like move all other kind of work to not requiring to have meetings. And I think if you, if you do those two things well, remote work will be better than it was working in the office. If you do those things poorly, uh, it will be significantly worse to work remotely. Yeah. And, and aside from remote, do you have any other uh, technology or tools that you recommend uh, that companies should look at in your experience? Yeah, I, I, I always recommend organizations to have some sort of uh, central place for documentation, where not just to read, but everybody should continue to contribute to it. There's several solutions. I think Coda and Notion are the best ones probably available right now. But really, whatever you have available, as long as everybody can access it, everybody can edit it, everybody can search through it, uh, that's the most important thing. And then like the tool, the actual tool is, is secondary to, to the fact that you have something that, that serves this function. Yeah, great. Um, I should have probably asked this before, but what's, uh, what's your business model actually? Yeah, we just charge a monthly fee per employee. It's, so very it's, a, flat it's a flat fee. Yeah, yeah, it's a flat fee. We charge $599 per employee per month. And that's it. We, we don't charge for anything else. Uh, yeah, the, the rest, just we just charge you the cost of the salary and, and the taxes. Wow, I'm, I'm sort of uh, surprised how straightforward the pricing can be. <laughs> with that kind of thing. Uh, and um, how much do you pay for the domain name? <laughs> I had to ask. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good thing you raised some funding, so maybe you can. Uh, this is a good excuse to sort of elaborate on that as well. Yeah, yeah. No, um, it's uh, no. It it was it wasn't cheap to get the domain name, but uh, yeah, we're doing well, so I think it worked out. Yeah, and but you did raise a funding round. I think was um, a lot by Two Sigma uh, Index Ventures involved. So maybe can you talk about that a little? 
Of course, we, um, yeah, early in a year in April, we announced our fundraising. We raised a seed round of about 11 million. So it was two Sigma Ventures, General Catalyst and Index Ventures and a few others, uh, smaller ones. Uh, this is exactly what allows us to expand across countries, right? As you can imagine, this is incredibly expensive to open, you know, entities in every country in the world. Uh, and this is, this is the reason why we raised that. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a, quite a significant uh, seed round, especially for uh, European standards. Uh, did this all happen remotely as well? Did all these these meetings happen virtually and and closing the deal, etc.? Uh, yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, I think I haven't met all of our investors in person. Um, so some of them I had because I knew them before. Others I had after they invested. But uh, yeah, for the most part, uh, yeah, I didn't meet them. And, and actually, most of my colleagues I haven't met in person. So yeah, quite uh, I don't. I think I, you know, I, I read a lot on Twitter about like how to do fundraising remotely, but uh, I haven't found it to be hard at all. It's much more efficient. It's much easier to have many meetings in one day to schedule them very close to each other. So. Great. And uh, what are some of, the, some of the things you learned about this whole, you know, working remotely that you already sort of experienced with GitLab, but that was really new for you having founded remote.com? Like what, what is, what, what are some of the big learnings you take away from the last, let's say six months? What didn't you know about remote working when you were working remotely rather than, you know, finding a company to solve the challenges? I mean, I, I keep just being shocked by how difficult it is to do what we're doing. Like we, I expected that it was going to be hard to set up like the things that we do to set up in 10 different com uh, countries. But I think by then I expected that, well, then the rest is going to be like similar to those. And we could just basically copy paste the same thing we did. And what we're finding is that that is not at all the case. Every country comes with new surprises, new exceptions, new standards of, of doing things. And it, it's just uh, this is a never-ending complex puzzle that we're trying to solve here. So yeah. I think that that really has, for us as a whole team, has been incredibly uh, challenging. And it's an exciting challenge, but it also made me realize that wow, it's like the world is not ready for companies to be fully distributed and like yeah. you know hire ten people in ten different countries. Um, so yeah, that 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 stands out above everything else. Other than that, you know, I've been working remotely for six, seven years now. So. Uh, I, I know that it works really well and I know that almost everybody, in my experience, literally everybody, uh, tends to prefer it if you do it well. Yeah. And well, why is it so challenging? Is it a question of a just legacy that you know all these rules and, 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 and legislation was made in a time where that wasn't even an option? Or is it is it that policymakers are simply not, you know, adaptive to change quickly enough? Like what is the problem here? Well, that's certainly right. Uh, they are not they're not fast to make changes. Uh, it, it 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 comes from a long history of how countries are set up, what, uh, policies in countries, and incentives or or lack of incentives that they have. Right, and, uh, a country might want to encourage particular business kind of businesses to work. They want to might want to protect employees in particular ways or make it harder to be a particular type of employer. There's a million different reasons, but there's very little incentives for individual countries to one standardize across multiple countries like there's no reason for them to do that they, they the policymakers are not in contact with each other between the different countries so uh, they're not encouraged to do that in any way and yeah this wave of remote work 
you know, you've heard about like telework or, or something similar for, for many years, but uh, it has never been in the context of, well, businesses are going to operate internationally, even small businesses, right? Like at most, they're going to have a hub in another country uh, and not the way that, that we're doing it today. And I think that that change is just so incredibly rapid, especially with the pandemic, but even before that, that change is really, really rapid where, you know, the, the, the cycle of change of governments is not not in single digit years like it's a double digit years at least yeah. yeah and and you as a company operating this space do you see yourself playing an active role in trying to change that on a policy level do you want to maybe influence uh, policymakers on a european level or maybe even national levels yeah of course we are already working on that of course you can imagine it's slow and difficult in, in, by itself uh, but yes like there's many changes that have to be made for you know different countries to be able to offer a competitive solution uh, to making it easy to employ people, to make it easy to reward people, to compensate them, you know, just issuing options to people, which is very common with startups. It's really hard across European countries, for example, and they can have, it has all sorts of adverse tax effects to individuals, uh, which makes it harder to do business in those countries for a tech companies. So, yeah, there's so much to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And from your experience, is Europe really lagging behind a lot on compared to the US and maybe Asian Pacific uh, region? No, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that Europe as a whole is lagging behind anything else. Every, as, as, as I mentioned, every country has its own challenges, and those challenges are very varied and. Uh, they differ a lot on a country by country basis. Sure, Europe has its challenges or many specific European countries have challenges, um, but so the US has a lot of challenges as well, right? Whereas in the Euro in most European countries, we figured out how to provide great healthcare to essentially everybody at an affordable rate. That is very different situation in, in the US where, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about how do we provide uh, healthcare benefits to the people we employ, uh, which is very complicated there. Whereas in many European countries, we don't have to provide anything or what we provide is, is extremely cheap uh, and very simple. Yeah, quite a complex problem you're trying to solve, um, yeah. but very interesting uh, what you're doing. And uh, maybe as a final question, because we were asking like, what's the most challenging country? What was the easiest country? What was the, the surprising one? Was, where is it the easiest to start a, a business mm -hmm. or hire someone? So there's a difference between what is easy for us and what's easy for you as an employer. Because what's easy for us is countries that support employer record models, which is really the, how we operate. And those countries, uh, is the Netherlands and the UK are both relatively easy to operate. I think the Netherlands is uh, probably easiest in that sense. They have great, like really one of the factors that determines whether it's hard or easy to operate in a country is whether the government has a great website with a lot of resources. So both the UK and the Netherlands have great websites with, that are like comprehensive Comprehensive. You can basically read it yourself. It's not written in legalese. Um, so those countries have been relatively straightforward to operate in. Um, that said, I did have to travel to them to be able to open up. So it's not like you could do everything remotely. Yeah. So good website. Start with the basics. Yeah. Uh, and maybe maybe as a final final question, um, what do you think of Estonia? Is of course a really good example of uh, how to approach things differently. So if you look at like their e-residency program, their the digital nomad visa that, that they're now introducing, uh, do you think that's the future of how countries should be looking at uh, at these challenges? Uh, look, I, I think they're setting the right example. It's not a solution, though, right? Like it's not a permanent solution because if you live or you have residency in any other country, you still you will be double taxed even through Estonia. So it, it it's definitely headed in the right direction, and I wish all countries would be as ambitious as Estonia is in these senses. But it's not 
it's another ultimate resolution. The ultimate resolution comes from like larger EU mandates, for example, to make it easier to employ cross regions, to make it easier to you know live in multiple countries or be a digital nomad. And uh, so until many more countries adopt much wider ranging uh, policies and uh, collaborate much more closely with other countries, uh, this is going to continue being a very large issue. And honestly, yeah, the incentives today are not there for countries yeah. to make it easy to collaborate with, between them. So makes sense, but unfortunate. Uh, yeah. Really, really nice um, insights on, on what you're trying to to solve as a company. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to join us for the podcast. And uh, I'll be very, uh, I'll be looking very closely at uh, what comes next for remote. Thank you so much, Job. Thanks, Robin. And this is it for our today's podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show. Follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU or go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review or a few stars. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Also, please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at all at podcast at tech.eu. I will talk to you next Friday or maybe even earlier if we have a special interview episode. In the meantime, have a great week and take care. Bye-bye.